Well, good morning, church. It's good to see some faces here, uh, and I'm grateful that you are joining us here today. Uh, those who are online, those are here today. Uh, today, I'm, I'm saying something that I never thought I would be saying in front of a church. We're going to take a little break from Jesus. Um, so we have been going through the book of Luke. We've been preaching through that entire book. And uh, Scott has given me the opportunity to create my own sermon series, uh, and I've decided to go with a series called United, which is going to be based out of Philippians. Uh, And we uh, are still fulfilling the promise that Scott gave at the beginning of the year that every single Sunday we would be preaching Jesus uh, from uh, the pulpit. So I I want to say that I will still be honoring uh, that promise. Um, But as we go through that, uh, through this series, uh, I hope that you see uh, that the instruction that Paul has for the Philippian church is still very applicable for us today. Um, and so we're going to be focusing on, on three realms of united, uh, the united self, the united church, and the united world. And we're going to see how Paul understands how, how transforming yourself has a ripple effect that moves outward in the community and in the world. Um, so today, specifically, we're going to focus on the self. And I want to start by talking about heaven. Uh, that, that amazing Christian buzzword. Um, it's the end goal. It's, it's where we say we're headed, or at least that's what we say we believe. And weirdly enough, it, it doesn't motivate us a, a, as we think that it, it might. You see, we believe that this is where we're going. We believe this is our end goal, and we believe that this is what God has for us. But it's not something we tend to keep in our minds in the day in and day out. And if you're like me, you might think that if we believe in a good God, who has created a good heaven, that it's going to be filled with good people. I think that just kind of makes sense, don't you? Today I want to open with a clip from one of my favorite shows called The Good Place, where they explore the concept of heaven. Uh, This clip is from this very first episode. It explores Where do we go when we die? What happens? And it also explores what kind of a life do we have to live on earth to get there, to get to the good place. And this clip is from their very first day after being dead, and it serves as a little bit of an orientation to the afterlife. It's going to answer the question, why are we here and how do other people get there? Let's go ahead and watch. Uh, Hello, everyone, and welcome to your first day in the afterlife. You were all, simply put, good people. But how do we know that you were good? How are we sure? During your time on Earth, every one of your actions had a positive or a negative value, depending on how much good or bad that action put into the universe. Every sandwich you ate, every time you bought a magazine, every single thing you did, had an effect that rippled out over time and ultimately created some amount of good or bad. You know how some people pull into the breakdown lane when there's traffic and they think to themselves, ah, who cares? No one's watching. We were watching. Surprise! (laughs) Anyway, when your time on Earth has ended, we calculate the total value of your life using our perfectly accurate measuring system. Only the people with the very highest scores, the true cream of the crop, get to come here, to the good place. What happens to everyone else, you ask? Don't worry about it. The point is, you are here because you lived one of the very best lives that could be lived. And you won't be alone. 
your true soulmate is here too. That's right, soulmates are real. One of the other people in your neighborhood is your actual soulmate, and you will spend eternity together. So welcome to eternal happiness. Welcome to the good place. Sponsored by otters holding hands while they sleep. You know the way you feel when you see a picture of two otters holding hands? That's how you're going to feel every day. Now, I know that seems a little ridiculous uh, to listen to the great theologian Ted Danson um, and, and think about people in terms of this number that's assigned to them, whether that be positive or negative, based on the actions that they've done. Um, but without realizing it, I sometimes tend to think about my own perfection, my own holiness in similar terms, in accounting terms. You see, I learned to read at a pretty young age. Uh, it was shortly after my third birthday, uh, and legend has it in my household, it was just because Ashley, my older sister, was bored one day and needed a project, and I was her project. That was kind of how our relationship worked. She told me all the ways I needed to be changed, and I agreed. So I realized pretty early on that this impressed people. I, I caught wind of that pretty quickly, and so I started reading a lot because I enjoyed impressing people. Um, but this funny thing happened. Uh, I realized that the older I got, the less impressive it was that I knew how to read uh, because everybody could do that. And so I started reading more. And I started focusing instead on my grades and my achievement in school. And I wanted to be the smartest, the best in the room. And I, I pushed myself much harder than my parents ever did because the fear that I had within myself of not meeting my ridiculously high standards for myself was, was way worse than anything they could instill in me. And so I, I became so focused on these numbers, this grade, this importance that it kind of consumed me. It became much more important than even I realized. The first time I got a B, I was devastated. I didn't know how to handle it. I had absolutely no preparation. I, I didn't know what to do. And even to this day, I'm a graduate student, and my grades are still very important for me. Because w when I'm making good grades, when I'm the smartest person in the room, I feel like God loves me. And when I'm not when there's somebody there who's read more than me, who knows more than me, then I'm pretty sure he, he doesn't. I buy into this accounting language that the good place uses a lot more than I thought I would. Even more than this, when I feel like I've done something wrong, when I'm experiencing shame or guilt, I feel like I have to cover that up with my own actions. I have to put more good out into the universe. I have to atone myself for this wrong that I've caused. It, it feels like I, I'm working against myself a little bit, like, like there's two me's battling it out, a good me and a bad me, one gaining me points and one losing me points. And I'm just sitting there watching and praying that the good version of me is going to win, that my point total is just going to squeak me in, just be just high enough I, I know my story, my experience won't be exactly true for everyone here, but I think you've experienced something similar to this. At any given point, there's always something that's going to come along that's going to question, make us question whether we are enough, 
whether we've done enough. And we feel the need to compensate on our own with our own strength. Today, we're going to be talking about a church that was going through something really similar. And we're going to see exactly how Paul addressed this. See, our series, like I said, is based out of Philippians. This is a letter that Paul wrote to a church in the Roman city of Philippi. And in this church, they were clearly struggling with divisions. And just like us, they were wrestling with this question of, what should I be confident in? We know from this letter uh, that the audience, the church itself, was composed both of Jewish people and of Gentile people. And from what we can tell about the letter, it seems like the Jewish Christians are bragging about the fact that they are circumcised, which I admit is a pretty weird thing to brag about. But I I kind of follow the logic there. I kind of understand because remember that circumcision was a sign of the promise that God had given to Abraham. So the Jewish Christians seem to think that while everyone was a Christian, while we all share that aspect, we over here also have this sign of the promise. So we must be extra special. To put this another way, we all have Christ, but we have Christ and. We have just a few more points in our column because of our Jewish descent, so we should really stay humble. And if there's one thing that Paul won't stand for, it is using the gospel, using Jesus to belittle others, to gain the upper hand. So we're going to read exactly how he addresses this issue beginning in chapter 3. Read with me, if you would, starting in verse 1. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is not troublesome to me, and for you it is a safeguard. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of those who mutilate the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, even though I too have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Let's stop there for a second. Paul handles this much differently than I would expect. He, he obviously has this issue that needs to stop. It is the issue of inequality. It is the issue of other people saying, I am more important because I am Jewish. And, and the easy thing to do would be to say, no, you're wrong. That's not the way it is. Instead, Paul kind of goes with them on this experiment. He says, okay, guys, if you want to play that game, we can go down that path. And he starts listing off his resume. He's saying, are you proud of being circumcised? Because I am circumcised too. Are you proud of being Jewish? Because I am a Hebrew born of Hebrews. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. My ancestors were brought out of Egypt by God. You were passionate about your religion. I killed for my religion. You feel like you were educated on the scriptures? I was a Pharisee. I was an expert. I had my doctorate in scripture. And you feel like you were good under the law? I was perfect under the law. See, that's the problem 
with trying to keep track of points, with saying that I have Christ and. There's always going to be someone like Paul who comes along and has just a few more points for you. Paul is trying to say, if if you're going to brag about this thing that you are doing, I'm going to show you how meaningless it is because I have done so much better. It's incredibly ironic to me that the good place in, in trying to make fun of this mentality and kind of trying to poke holes in Christianity, they're, they're actually stumbling on a pretty important Christian truth. And that is this system, this accounting language, these numbers, it's no way to live. With our focus on this imaginary point system, we're going to be driven insane. We're going to be terrified that there's always just a little bit more that we could be doing. This is the divided self. It's the self that's constantly focused inward, keeping their own point tallies, the plus and the minus. Think of what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. What I want to do, I am not able to do. And these things that I don't want to do, these are the things that I do. Paul is at war with himself. The attention on the numbers and our own actions is going to drive us crazy. I'm speaking this morning to the people who are living in fear, myself included. The fear that we might not have done enough, the fear that we might not be good enough. Those who fear they're not going to be able to bring themselves out of whatever sin they find themselves in. Those who fear that they're not going to be a good enough parent, a good enough spouse. Those who worry they just haven't done enough to earn Jesus' love. And this morning, I want to offer you some encouragement that you are absolutely right. And that's the whole point. Paul doesn't stop there. It's not about the resume for him because we get to keep reading. In verse 7, he goes on, Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead." When I first read through this, I completely missed what Paul was trying to say in verse 7 because he's actually using extremely explicit accounting language. Here's how N.T. Wright translates this. Does that sound as though my account was well in credit? Well, maybe. But whatever I had written in on the profit side, I calculated it instead as a loss because of the Messiah. Paul is saying that every single thing he thought was making his point total go up. Everything he once considered a credit is now a net loss because it kept him from seeing what Christ had to offer. Now because of Jesus, he sees all all these things as negatives. Really think about that for a second. It's not just zero. He's not saying these things don't get you anywhere. He's saying these things that you are taking pride in, these things that you think are accomplishing progress, are actually pulling you backwards, are actually counting against you, are actually digging you deeper and deeper in debt. To put this another way, 
Paul was so busy working at his part-time job that he was never able to make it to the bank to cash that $10 billion check he had laying around. What he thought was working towards him and building himself up was actually counting against him and keeping him from realizing the beauty and the power and the riches that he always could have had. Christ is the only factor that is even worth mentioning in our point total. And any focus on what we can do to help him in making ourselves better is just going to distract us from what has already been accomplished. This is huge to me, especially when I try to put it in perspective of my own life. Because anything I could possibly think of to try to be proud in, my grades, my knowledge of the Bible, even how well I preach this sermon, has absolutely no bearing on Christ's opinion of me. That has already been cemented. Anything that I can do, all these things, are nothing. They're working against me. The preacher Jonathan Stormont is fond of saying, the beauty of the gospel is that the question of self-worth has been taken out of your hands and decided in your favor. There's incredible humility in knowing that I am nothing. But there's also great freedom in knowing that my own shortcomings don't ever change God's mind about me. This is what we would call being the united self. The united self is the one that sees interacts with, and is transformed by the resurrected Jesus. The united self has seen the good news and the freedom that Christ brings. The united self has dared to have the courage to feel mercy. The united self has had the strength to release their hold on everything that has been dragging them down. The united self has given themselves permission to feel the love and acceptance they're always craving because it's ready and waiting for them. And you have absolutely no choice but to walk away changed, transformed. The united self looks inward and sees only a negative self, but it also looks inward and sees Christ that has worked to redeem it and make it something beautiful. The united self is the one that has the humility to see Jesus as being the only possible factor in determining your worth. Paul says that not only has Jesus made the accounts so imbalanced as to be beyond changing, he took this whole accounting system and threw it in the trash because there's nothing that can possibly weigh against Jesus's presence in our lives. There is no negative that can compete with how great of a positive Jesus has won for us. The only question for Paul, and I hope for us, is not how would I be in danger of ruining it. It is how do I go forward from here? What do I do now? So let's keep reading what he says in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own. I do not consider that I have grasped this, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us then who are mature be of the same mind. And if you think differently about anything, this too God will reveal to you. Only let us hold fast to what we have attained. See, at first glance in this section, it seems like Paul 
is confusing his earlier message. Because he's, he, he's talking a lot about striving and running and pressing forward. And it sounds like he's kind of going against himself and saying, yes, this requires effort on your own part. But don't miss what he says in verse 13. He's forgetting what lay behind and he's pressing forward. And that's something that not a lot of us can honestly say. Most of us, we aren't as motivated by what's ahead as we like to think. We aren't as motivated by the picture of heaven. We're more motivated by the fear of what's behind. We're, we're not trying to reach heaven. We're trying to outrun hell. I don't think that's a very good thing. And that's not what Paul advises but haunted by the mistakes of the past or even the present, we obsess over how to rid ourselves of them. And if anyone could be sympathetic to this, surely it's Paul, the man who spent a good part of his adult life murdering Christians in cold blood, thinking it's what God had wanted. But he has somehow achieved such a single-minded focus on what Christ has accomplished and the beauty and the promise that that brings, that he has managed to completely forget it and leave it in his past. He's laid it down. He's let it go. See, Jesus doesn't just take our baggage to free up our hands to pick up more along the way. He takes it from us in the hopes that we will run towards him as fast as we can with unburdened arms. This is the image of the united self, someone who is entirely focused on what's in front of us, Jesus, waiting for us, ready for us. Paul, in verse 16, doesn't say, work hard and you might attain it. Paul says to hold fast to what we have already attained. Really focus on this. Paul isn't running the marathon hoping he is fast enough to win the last prize. Paul is running with the ease and confidence, knowing that he has already won. This isn't so much a race as it is jogging up to the winner's podium to receive what's already yours. Or to put this in a more Americanized version, some of you may have noticed that uh, baseball uh, was announced that it's coming back here in America, much to Diane Vinigoni's delight, if you know her. And I want to think about how the, how the runners run the bases, because it's very different when a home run has been hit. Have you ever noticed that? When the ball is in play, they're hustling around the bases and they're running out of fear, trying not to get tagged out, trying desperately to stay safe. But when the ball clears the wall, when the ball is in the stands, they still have the bases to run, but they run much more easily, knowing that it doesn't matter how fast, how well they run, the ball is still in the outfield. It's still in the stands. That run is still going to stand. All that's left to do is circle the bases. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus swung the bat for us. Jesus clocked the ball into the stands. Jesus hit the home run, and we get to run the bases. And it does not matter if we stumble, if we trip, if we fall flat on our faces, if we stop altogether, because the run still stands. It doesn't change the reality of what Jesus has accomplished. We still get to run with the joy and the freedom knowing what has been done for us. This is the joy that comes with being united in Christ. There are no bad days or days off for Jesus. When you read your Bible, when you prayed for an hour this morning, when you gave 
your money to the poor, when you have fasted for a week, you haven't made God love you anymore. And the flip side of that is no less true. When you lied, when you shouted in your anger and said some things that you regret, when you succumbed again to alcohol, to drugs, to sex, to pornography, when you cheated on your spouse, or even when you pulled the trigger to kill someone, you haven't made God love you any less. And that is something that I still wrestle with so much on a cognitive and emotional level. I don't see how that can be true, but that is the reality that Paul is pointing us to. Nothing that you are doing is changing God's mind about you for better or for worse. This is Paul's challenge to the Philippians. The call to Christians is not to live out of pride because we are the good people. We are tempted all the time, I think, because we live good lives. We are moral people. We go to church. We do the right things. We don't cuss. We try not to drink too much. We treat other people kindly and with respect. And so we say we are the good people. And Paul is saying we cannot live out of that pride. The only acceptable posture that Christians can adopt to live is gratitude. All of our actions must come out of gratitude for all that Christ has done in us. Not because we deserved it, but because we didn't. Not because we were good, but because he was that good. And not because we loved him that well, but because he loved us that much. The next three weeks we're talking about unity that flows out of accepting Christ. It all starts with how we view ourselves. Belief in Christ is belief in something bigger and greater than all of us. Jesus is the true north that we can align our compasses with. And this week, my invitation to you is simple, but challenging. I challenge you to find a way to humble yourself. If you find yourself at any moment being proud of yourself, for being a good person. Rejoice in those moments. Celebrate them, but recognize Christ's presence in them and recognize Christ as the reason that we have any concept of love for anyone other than ourselves. And if you find yourself ashamed, if you find yourself worried about all the bad that you've done, rejoice in those moments too, knowing that you're just not strong enough to mess up God's plan for you. With this kind of practice in being united with Christ, we, the church, become unshakable. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning humbled. Not only humbled by how small and insignificant and powerless we are, but how big and mighty and powerful you are that you would dare to love us despite all the wrong we have done, despite us not being able to offer you anything. God, we just pray with grateful hearts. God, this week we ask that we would be reminded that anything we are is because of you. We would ask for the humility to look at each other out of love, the same love that you have shown us. And God, we ask that we can conduct ourselves in a way that reflects Jesus to the world. Not our own righteousness, but yours. God, we ask that you would 
unite us with you. You would help us stay focused on the true prize and that you would free us from this narrative that we are not good enough. God, help us be brave enough to feel and accept the love that you have ready for us and help us be transformed by it. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.